Let us pray. God of us all, take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire for Christ's sake, pray. Amen. Uh, last summer, June of 2020, um, there were marches every night in the streets of Portland, protesting the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Aubrey, and so, so, so many other Black Americans. On Fridays last June, uh, groups of PMCers would gather to be part of those uh, marches in the streets. We bring our signs, uh, we bring our umbrellas, because I remember it being pretty wet uh, last June. In fact, here's the bulletin cover from uh, June 14th of 2020. You can see us there. We have our rain jackets on. They said it was pretty wet. And signs, uh, justice, peace, Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, let justice roll down, silence equals violence, and, uh, and heart. And there were calls uh, in our community to reform policing, to defund policing, even to abolish policing. There were commitments in Salem at the state capitol in Washington, D.C. to address the structures and systems that have embedded racism and, and racialized outcomes uh, in this country. Um, and through the year, there was some momentum made toward more racial justice. Uh, and just this week, Juneteenth was designated as, as a national holiday. But this summer, um, if we're honest, momentum has stalled out a little bit. Um, you know, here in Portland, there was a move to shift funding uh, for public safety uh, away to some degree from the police department and toward social workers and addiction counselors. And just recently, our city council decided maybe that to pump the brakes on that, slow down a little bit. Let's wait and see. Um, there's been plenty of pushback against the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, state legislatures enacting voting restrictions that will, frankly, disproportionately disenfranchise people of color and communities of color. Um, school boards across the country are being pressured to limit or to outlaw, restrict the teaching of critical race theory. Even though I'm not sure most people know what critical race theory is, but it's hard for me to see that push as anything other than an attempt to whitewash American history. Um, if we're honest, our, our passion has waned some in the last year. It's been a tough year. It's been hard to stay focused. There's a lot going on. And I think now, you know, with vaccines, to be honest, a lot of us man, we just want to go visit our family that we haven't seen in months and months and months. We want to go camping in the mountains. We want to go to the beach for a few days. We don't want to go anywhere except quarantine in our own houses. Well, this summer, we are uh, reading the letter that St. Paul wrote uh, to the Philippians. It is an ancient text, more than 2,000 years old. But it's the story that we're part of still. And as we read through it this summer, I think we're going to find that it is still very, very timely. So the part we read today, the part that uh, Britt read earlier for us, uh, verse 27 begins with a fairly generic line. Paul writes, only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I've been going to church a long time. I've been working in the church for a long time. I've heard that line many times. And, and whenever I do, I think to myself, Okay, I'll stop swearing into my breath at that driver that doesn't seem to know what he's doing. Um, I will, I'll try harder to be a better neighbor. Um, I'll, I'll be a little more generous when they, when they ask me to support a family promise or whatever it might be. And you know what? All those are good things. But it turns out that's not actually what Paul wrote, at least not here, not in verse 27. In this particular verse, Paul uh, uses an unusual Greek word. Paul deliberately chose an unusual Greek word that literally in its root has to do with citizenship. 
Now, the other places that Paul wrote admonishments like this to the early church, he uses another much more generic sort of uh, Greek word. But what Paul writes here translates literally this way. One thing you must see too, whatever happens, live a life that is worthy of a citizen of the kingdom and of the gospel of Christ. Now that sounds a little bit different, doesn't it? And it makes a difference in the way we read that letter in the church, rather the church, the ancient church in Philippi or the church this summer in Portland, Oregon. Now as background uh, to this, this, this letter and to this particular verse, uh, it's helpful to know that the city of Philippi had been colonized by the Romans, by the Roman Empire, by the great regional power of that day. Philippi was a significant city at that point. It was on an important trade route. And so what the Romans would do with those kind of cities in their colony was they would send, or in their empire, they would send vets. They would send soldiers who had finished their service and who had been granted citizenship. They would send them in groups, like up to 300 soldiers at a time, retired soldiers with all their, wi- with their wives and their families, to settle and to secure these cities. And so these colonizers spoke the Roman language. They wore Roman clothes. They observed Roman uh, customs. They were proud, loyal Romans, even though Rome was a long ways off. I mean, Philippi is what you know, we now uh, know as Greece. Uh, even though it was a long ways off, it was a little Rome. Well, Paul knew that the ways of Rome were different than the way of Jesus, different than the wisdom of Jesus, different than the will of Jesus. Paul knew that to say Jesus is Lord is to say Caesar is not. Paul knew that to be a Christian is to switch allegiance. See, Paul was convinced, and I am too, that that the kingdom of heaven that Jesus talked so much about in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the beloved community, as Martin Luther King called it, the beloved community holds the hope of true humor, true justice, of true reconciliation, because it is grounded in the, in the redemptive power of God's love. The Romans relied on the power of empire to ensure the Pax Romana, Romana to ensure the peace of Rome. They relied on brute force. They relied on military. They relied on superior firepower. And any threat to the peace of Rome, to the Pax Romana, they put down violence. I mean, remember, these are the people who killed, who crucified Jesus. And what the Romans did has been true of empires ever since, including, honestly, the American empire. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, relies on the power of love. It relies on mercy, reconciliation, and compassion, and humility, and service, and reconciliation to bring God's holy, just peace on earth as in heaven. It's very different. So Paul writes to the church in Philippi, words that are written to us still. One thing you must see to whatever happens, live a life that is worthy of a citizen of the kingdom and of the gospel of Christ. Because Paul also knows that the lines of our loyalties can easily get blurred. Paul knows it from his own history. Remember, Paul was Jewish. And in the, in the books that we now in, in the church call the Older Testament, are stories of the Israelites following other gods and assimilating other customs, adopting other practices. And then you see those blurred lines of loyalty in the stories of the church that follow ever since Paul. So, for example, early in the fourth century, after the emperor Constantine uh, legitimated, legalized Christianity, what happened is the mission of the church started to line up with the mission 
of the empire. Loyalty to the church started to look a lot like loyalty to the empire. And those blurred lines of loyalty then run through history. So that by the time you get, for example, to the 11th century, you have the Crusades. The Crusades in which the Pope and the Byzantine Empire sent Christian forces to capture Jerusalem and frankly to wreak havoc on Israel, Palestine, well, Palestine. Um, in our own history, the history of this country, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That's how I learned it in history class when I was a kid. What I wasn't taught in history class is that Columbus, who was sponsored by Spanish uh, Catholic monarchs, Isabel and Ferdinand, went as an explorer with the authorization of the Pope. Pope Nicholas V in 1455 issued a papal bull giving permission to explorers like Christopher Columbus to, quote, invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens, that is Muslims, uh, and pagans whatsoever, and other enemies of Christ, and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. And when Columbus discovered the new world, that's exactly what he did, decimated Taino people. And when later colonists came to settle what became the United States, they did too. Indigenous people were displaced and they were decimated, drawing on that same doctrine of discovery. African, African people were enslaved and imported, and the church, by and large, blessed it. Now, parenthetically, what's interesting is that early on in the history of what became the United States, it was a little more complicated because early on, there was a recognition that Christians ought not enslave other Christians. And so white slaveholders really didn't want their black African slaves converting to Christianity. But in that era of the, of the great awakenings that came to be called in church history, the impulse to evangelize was strong. And so they developed the workaround. They, they latched onto that, that verse where Paul says, slaves obey your masters. And they decided that Christianity and slavery weren't incompatible after all. You just had to teach your slaves properly. You had to teach them that their Christian obligation was total obedience to their masters. And if that took a little violence, if that took a little brute force, well, you know, that's the price to be paid. But you can see now how those blurred lines of loyalty can utterly corrupt gospel. The result was and continued to be a, a colonized and a colonizing form of Christianity that is fundamentally at odds with Christ. So Frederick Douglass, a uh, freed slave, gave a speech once. And he said, what I have said respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference, so wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To receive the one is of necessity to reject the other. There can't be blurred lines of loyalty. So Paul writes, one thing you must see to whatever happens, live a life that is worthy of a citizen of the kingdom and the gospel of Christ. His words were as timely and challenging and potent um, and hopeful as ever. Because like the Philippian church, we live in a colonized land too. Now, the difference is most of us are descendants of the colonizers. 
those patterns of colonization that have been embedded in the structures, the customs, the history of this country and, and of our own lives. And so if we want to be part of, of the kingdom of God, if we want to be part of the beloved community, if we want to be part of the gospel work of healing and justice and reconciliation, the, the gospel work of racial and racial justice and racial recon, uh, reconciliation, then uh, as Douglas says, we have to receive the one and of necessity reject the other. We have to decolonize Christianity. Now, one thing we learned in the last year uh, and our, our learning is that the work of racial healing, of, of, of racial justice, of racial reconciliation, this work of decolonizing starts with telling a more truthful version of our story, stories of our own lives, our families, our heritage, the stories of our congregation, of our community, of our country. So um, earlier this year, in, in one of the adult classes, we read through uh, the Little Book of Racial Healing, which is written by Jody Geddes and Tom DeWolf. It's part of the Little Books of Justice and Peacebuilding that come out of um, uh, Eastern Mennonite University. And in it, they identify four pillars of racial healing. The first is to uncover history. So I want to read just a, a short excerpt about uncovering history. They write many parts of U.S. history, especially the unsavory and damaging parts have often been systematically and purposely buried, which again, parenthetically, is how many of us until very recently had no idea what happened in Tulsa 100 years ago. Most of us until very recently didn't know that 100 years ago, a white mob destroyed a prosperous African-American neighborhood in Tulsa. It was called the Black Wall Street of the day. A white mob killed upwards of 300 black citizens, injured many, many more, and terrorized that entire community. Many parts of U.S. history have often been purposely buried. And they go on, while doing so is understandable, hiding the shameful truths of history paints a false and incomplete picture of who we are today and where we came from. To heal wounds of racism, we must see racism for what it is and understand its causes, origin, development, and subsequent impact. To heal the wounds of racism, we have to tell a more truthful version of our story. Brian Stevenson, who wrote the book Just Mercy, who uh, initiated the National Museum for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, where they honor the names of more than 4,000 victims, African-American victims of lynching. Uh, Brian Stevenson, who's the executive director of the Equal Justice Institute, says that truth and reconciliation are sequential. To get the reconciliation, we first have to engage in truth-telling. And I want to share a short video of Brian Stevenson. So listen. I don't believe we're free in America. I think we're haunted by our history of racial inequality. We're burdened by this legacy created by slavery and lynching and segregation. And whether you're born in 2017 or 1930, you are affected by the environment that we have created by being silent I don't think slavery ended in 1865. I think it evolved. We had mobs of thousands of people gathering in courthouse yards and fields and doing horrific things to people. And we haven't done anything to acknowledge that. It is American history. Us to recover from that violence, from that terrorism, we all have to know it and we have to talk about it. I think it will compel us to think differently about what we need to do to correct the past, to address the past,
but also how we make a better future. History of slavery, lynching, of segregation. When you see pictures, when you see a picture like that one where you could see the feet of a lynched man and underneath it, boys smiling. You can understand why Matt and I want to tell that story, but we have to know it. We have to talk about it. Yesterday, Juneteenth, the Oregon Remembrance Project, which is connected to the Community Remembrance Project of the Equal Justice Institute, placed a plaque in, uh, or they're going to replace a plaque in Coos Bay to memorialize the one uh, known lynching that happened in Oregon. It happened in 1902. A man named Alonzo Tucker was lynched. We'll uh, remember more of Alonzo Tucker's story later in our service. It is painful to face that path. It is painful to puncture the myth of white innocence, but it is necessary. It is necessary for each of us to know and to talk honestly about our own family histories. Some of us can trace our family histories back to ancestors who owned slaves. All of us, at least almost all of us, live and work and study and play on land that earlier had supported other people who were forcibly displaced. This church meeting house is on land that earlier had supported people who were later displaced. And so as a start toward telling a more truthful story, each week in our bulletin, we include a land acknowledgement. And, uh, you know, it's easy to overlook, but I, um, I want to read it now. As we learn about the doctrine of discovery, as we recognize, we recognize that the land on which our meeting house is located and the land on which many of us live was previously home to Native American peoples decimated and uprooted as this area was settled. Portland metro area rests on traditional village sites of Multnomah, Wasco, Cowlitz, Kathlamet, Clackamas, Bands of the Chinook, Tualatin, Kalapuya, Malala, and many other tribes who lived and traveled along the Columbia River, creating communities, summer encampments to harvest and use the plentiful resources of the area. Is that land acknowledgement enough? Of course it's not, but it's a start. Uncovering history is the first pillar. It's how we begin to decolonize Christianity, but it's only the first pillar. Truth and reconciliation are sequential. If you watched the, the ceremony yesterday, Taylor Stewart, who founded the Oregon um, uh, Remembrance Project, pointed out there's another word in between truth and reconciliation. It is repair. It starts with truth-telling, but it's got to move us toward reconciliation, and it moves via the repair work of justice and healing. So the question is, What's next for you? What's next for me? What's next for us? Here at Portland Mennonite Church, there are, there are several opportunities and resources. Some people in our congregation are connected to coming to the table. There's a chapter in Portland. It's people who gather to work through these four pillars, including uncovering our own personal history. If you're interested in learning more about coming to the table, you can check in with Sylvia Shirt. Uh, she's connected to it. Next week, as part of the work of anti-racism that we're trying to do here at Portland Mennonite Church, we're going to again offer the wider stand anti-racism training. If you took it before, if you want to take it again, um, contact Britt uh, Carlson in our office. She's uh, organizing the triads of people to reflect on what we learn in that training. Through the summer, we're going to start preparing for an anti-racism audit of our congregation. In the fall, we're going to continue to develop uh, the practice of reparation 
for us as a congregation, for us as individuals. Practice that acknowledges the unmerited privileges that some of us have accrued and also makes a financial commitment to support opportunities for people of color, communities of color. So what's next? What's next for you, for me, for us? <coughs> In Philippians, Paul writes, one thing you must see to whatever happens, live a life that is worthy, citizen of the kingdom and of the gospel of Christ. Paul, Paul's a, Paul, Paul calls us to be clear about our loyalties. He calls us to hold on to the hope of the gospel, to the promise of the beloved community. He calls us to the work of doing justice and loving mercy. At times it can be hard, it can be painful, it can be slow. At times momentum flags and energy wanes. But Paul calls us still. He calls us to stand firm in one spirit. He calls us to strive side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm. Strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Maybe so. Maybe 